As a listener of the Standard Age podcast, you may have heard me thank today's guest at the end of every episode. Jensen Reed not only co-wrote the theme track to this show, he was one of the first people I met when I moved to Los Angeles. Coincidentally, we both moved to California within weeks of one another from the same town of Cary, North Carolina. It's truly hard to believe it's been nearly 14 years. We talk about how that all unfolded while Jensen explains his path from being a solo musician to his successful career as a voiceover artist. Though both professions involve microphones, the bridge that connected the two happened to be the sport of tennis. A major takeaway from this week's episode is certainly the incredible power of networking. We talk about music from the 80s and 90s, the albums his mom didn't want him listening to, how he drove a ranchero as his first car, as well as how he began making viral music videos with millions of views on Facebook. It's always fun to sit down with someone who is such a close friend, and this is no exception. You never know where life can take you, and for Jensen, life is actually taking him back east to Nashville, but I'll let him tell it. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Today's guest is actually a very, very dear friend of mine, Jensen Reed. Welcome to the Standard Age Podcast. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. Yeah, <laughs> we have a cool story. Um, where were you born? I was born in Oxford, Ohio. Um, Ohio? Yeah. Jumped around a little bit. My dad was a college football coach for 25 years, so he was the head coach at Miami of Ohio when I was born. Then he went to NC State. Um, and then to Michigan, so I moved there. And then once he got out of coaching, my parents loved North Carolina so much that we moved back there. What? Um, how old were you when you moved to Michigan? I was, I guess, like second grade. Oh, so you remember Michigan well then? Yes, I was there until I moved right um, before high school. So it was a it was a a move that was traumatic for me because I had a friend group going into high school. Cool. You know? Um, well, yeah, man, I can only imagine cause moving at 14, I mean, yeah, high school is such a pivotal time for anybody really. For sure. Um, yeah. I, I can't imagine. Now, what did your mom do? Was she a housewife or did she work? She was a school teacher. And then when she, um, had us, I have a younger sister. She, she became a housewife. Um, oh, okay. What did she teach? Now that I, she tell, taught elementary school. Now that I'm a parent of my, in my own right, I marvel at what she was able to do because my dad being a coach, especially at a place like Michigan, any big time place, we didn't see him very much at all. There was like one night a week was family night. And even in the off season, he would be recruiting. So my mom, <laughs> I got a two year old and it's a handful for my wife and me. Um, and my mom did it pretty much all on her own um so superwoman 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 yeah she's amazing so you have a very um strong i guess uh tennis background when did you pick up tennis that's funny too speaking of my mom because i always held it against her i didn't start playing tennis until i was in seventh grade um and then when i started competing and playing in tournaments Every kid I was playing, you know, started when they were five. And I would just be like, Mom, why did you not start me, uh, you know, sooner? Um, so, yeah, seventh grade, which that led to part of my frustration um, 
of moving because I was going to go to Pioneer High School in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is right across the street from the big house. And they ended up winning three out of four state championships. I would have been a big part of that team. And it was a bummer. Like, I, it's still, honestly, as I talk about it, I haven't thought about it in a long time. But from a high school standpoint, I mean, and the, the coach and the, my, my friends were also kind of bummed that I was leaving, too. They ended up doing fine without me. Um, but, yeah, that, was, <laughs> well, that added an extra I, um, salt. Yeah, I'm sorry to bring it up. Uh, <laughs> no, all good. All good. Um, so you ended up at Cary High School, which Cary is where I grew up, literally. Like I never lived in any other town prior to moving, well, other than boarding school. But anyway, um, I'm assuming you played tennis at Cary? I did, yeah. How were they? We had a good squad. Yeah, oh, okay. we, it was it was just different the way North Carolina Athletics did it. Um, but, yeah, we won the conference every year and regionals. It was a weird... I can't even remember the exact differences of how the the structure of the actual state playoffs, but it was something weird about it that we always oh, I know what it was. We always had to play Broughton from Raleigh, like second round of the state playoffs. There was no seeding. It was somehow like the 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 conference champion of our conference always had to play the conference champion of whatever conference Broughton was in. Broughton was a basically a magnet school where they could recruit players and they were ridiculous every they like my team in in Michigan they won the state championship every year so we had to play them every single year like the second round of the state playoffs and we never were able to beat them um so oh, man and it, I remember being really because they didn't seed like a normal tournament like the NCAA tournament where you'd have you know the two best teams would face off later in the tournament so right right so um, obviously you became um a tennis pro by way of coaching um, did you try to play professionally? No. Um, oh, okay. I could have played in college. It was at that time, the choice was I was in a band um, in high school that was doing pretty well locally called Swamp Gas Charlie um, way, way back in the day. But so I, that was really my passion. Um, I took a visit to Georgetown that was eliminated quickly because the only scholarship sport at that time was basketball. Um, and then a couple other places, like I could have played at some, some smaller schools or even like NC state or stuff like that. But then I went to Carolina, um, who always has a very strong tennis program, maybe could have walked on there, uh, and made it, it would have been, I would have been one of the potential people but it's super competitive and I ultimately made the decision not to even do it because I was pursuing music and knew that if I was a college athlete there's no way I could you know balance both both. yeah I completely forgot about Swamp Gas Charlie (laughs) I'm pretty sure I had that cassette like I think I had some pirated cassette or some like you know yeah man before version I'm aging myself before there was the internet and you know Kids had in, like could do anything. We we man, we sold out huge shows in high school. Like three, four hundred kids would come out to nightclubs in Raleigh, like high school kids, and um, we were in school kids records, the local store. We were like the number one selling album locally, and um, times have changed. But yeah, man, it's funny. I even every not like every I don't know six months, I'll have some random person from my past or high school. Uh, you know, hit me up and be like, dude, I found my Swamp Gas Charlie CD. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> like, man, That's hilarious. 16. 
Yeah. And then, I mean, school kids, what more can you say about them? I mean, they were like the shop, but it was still like mom and pop underground indie vibe. Um, the last time I thought about school kids records was when Zach Galifianakis showed up on Jimmy Kimmel wearing a school kids record shirt. Oh, that's funny. And I was like, dude, that's because inc- he's from Raleigh or at yep. least North Carolina. And I think he went to NC State. Zach did. And as if I know him, uh, first name basis, of course. Right. Um, but yeah, he, he rocked this white school kids records t-shirt on, on Kimmel. And I was like, dude, that's incredible. Um, yeah. Don't want to have a nostalgic, like, you know, trip down memory lane, but that I do miss, like I would stand outside, you know, at midnight on, I guess, yeah. Monday nights, because releases yeah, would come out Tuesday. on Tuesday, yeah. Yeah. Um, to get the new Biggie album or the new, like, you know, and School Kids was always the place. There was one in um, Chapel Hill, there was one in Raleigh, the one in Cary. There's one in we Cary. Yeah, in yep. Cameron Village. Um, so yeah, School Kids was awesome. They had great, like, t-shirts, vinyl, posters, you know. Um, yeah, it's a, you know, dying, there's no need for it when I've got a hundred million songs in my phone. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. It's funny. I got Pearl Jam's Vitology at one of those midnight releases in Cary. I probably was there too, or one of the places I remember the Pearl Jam coming out. Yeah. Um, that's so crazy. Cause they had, they had like limited edition. I even Vitology had like a paper. Yeah. Black like limited. Ed- yeah. Um, sleeve. Uh, yeah. With like the gold stamp. Yep, stamp. Yeah. I can see it right now. Um, or D-Boss, I guess it was. Um, what was your first album that you ever bought? Well, I snuck. My mom would not let me listen to Beastie Boys' License to Ill. Amazing. Or Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. And I was able to get copies of those from friends when I was up in Michigan and, like, surreptitiously listen to them <laughs> and, like... Um, so those were the first albums that really, like, I loved. And there was obviously something exciting about it because my parents didn't want me to listen to it either. Um, but, yeah. That's so funny, man. What, uh, what do you consider to be the most influential album you've ever had? That's tough, man. I just am all over the map as far as genres, what I, what I love. But, um, I mean, it, like... Middle school was when I got molded into like into loving hip hop um, as well as classic rock. So like simultaneously, I got into I love Led Zeppelin. And then I think Tribe Called Quest Low End Theory might be the album. Well, Beastie Boys, that that License to Ill album was like the first album. I was even younger. I think I I was in elementary school for that. So I I like loved it. But then the Tribe low in theory album is like a very memorable um album for me of like just opening up the doors to hip-hop and then also led zeppelin four um were kind of the two yeah hip-hop and rock that i remember clearly i uh, the only time i would ever consider myself lucky to have an older brother was based around music because he was like listening to stuff far earlier than i would because he's four years older so I mean, he had the Beastie Boys album. He had, I mean, he was, you know, Bon Jovi and, and all the... I had that to Slippery When Wet oh, was yeah, another one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all the hair band stuff, too. Yep, Poison, Molly Crew. Molly Crew. Yeah. Um, My mom was not a fan of those. No, either. 
No, my mom, <laughs> my mom never knew. Uh, <laughs> what was your first car? My car, my car history is pretty funny, man. I, so my dad always wanted us to ha- drive a big car because of safety. I mean, you're, if you're in a car accident, it's going to be safer. Well, his, my grandpa had a, a 1977 Ford Ranchero, which is basically a bigger version of an El Camino. It's like a car truck. Yeah. Um, do you know it? Do you know it? Ford Ranchero? I know exactly what that even, is. Yes. You know what that is? Yes. Yeah. So it has like a, a V, a, might even be a V10. In, I mean, it's a <laughs> massive engine. And I would drive that to school and I got over quickly like, it was not a cool car, but I, in my own way, I was like, I don't give a shit. I made it, uh, you know, my own car. So then once I got my own car, um, like that was a family car. My dad bought me a Ford Crown Victoria, and that was like the boxy version, basically a cop car. That was a cop then car, I gradu- yeah. <laughs> then I graduated into, uh, that was a maroon one. Then I graduated <laughs> into a Mercury Grand Marquis. Which is the same car, yes. only Mercury might be a little more upscale than a than a, a Ford. And then, because I had been at that point groomed to love big cars, when I bought my car, like when I got out of college and before I moved to L.A., in fact, I bought a Lincoln Town Car. Brilliant. A giant blue Lincoln Town Car that... Um, I called Big Louise. I had names for all of them too. The Mar- Grand Marquis was Big Shirley. Then it was Big Louise, um, and I loved it, man. I I embraced the idea, and I was doing like hip hop music at the time. I just embraced the idea, like I was Tony Soprano. Like, right. I love the fact that people could not figure out like I was the only person under seventy or not a hired <laughs> driver driving a Lincoln Town Car with like velour suits on, and like, dude, I was a mess. Um, <laughs> but then I drove, I drove Big Louise. Out to L.A., the the greatest road trip car ever. I mean, you're just sailing. Yeah. It's like a boat. Floating. And then I, I got to L.A. and quickly realized it was quite possibly the worst city car ever. The turning radius, you know, um, MPG was, I think, eight. Yeah. Um, so anyway, my cars are funny. And now, um, then I got a, I've had a Mini Cooper and... Um, yeah, so <laughs> I've changed a lot. It's funny because I was going to ask you. So you moved to L.A. about three weeks before I did. That was simply yes. just to pursue music. What was the impetus there? Yep. Um, I had been itching to go. I was in a group in the Triangle area. I was living in Chapel Hill uh, called Plan B. And we did. Pr- we were doing pretty well just regionally, like that area, uh, playing shows all the time. Um had some some buzz about us and you know just couldn't get any real traction and I I always wanted to be in a place with more opportunities and then I couldn't it was a basically a, it started as a group of two um and then there were three three of us and I just couldn't get the other two guys to go and I I finally I was like I got to do it cuz I know I would I'd regret it if I didn't give it a shot to to move out to LA so yeah that was April of 2007 yeah, man, it's kind of crazy just as a backstory for those listening. So Jensen and I pretty much, well, at least for you, for high school and on, grew up in the same town of Cary, but we never met. And then fast forward two weeks before I moved to L.A., I'm like at a pizza spot downtown Raleigh, see a mutual friend of ours, Hunter, and Hunter's like, hey, you should meet my boy JD. He just moved 
to LA as well because I told him I was moving. And so anyway, that's how you and I met is actually not until I got to LA and texted you and said, Hey man, uh, Saul Hunter. And you're like, yeah, he, t- he gave me a heads up. So then we quickly became fast friends, but not until 2007, not until Los Angeles, not until, you know, both of us were in California, which is, which is kind of crazy, uh, small world type status. But, um, I was going to ask you, what do you remember most about murdering out your Ford Escape? I forgot. I didn't mention that one. And I'll backtrack. I think this is at least an interesting enough story because I owe you, I owe you a lot. Um, so yes, within, I think you had been here like a week, we decided to meet up Yeah. and found out that we had a bunch of like mutual friends, kids that you grew up with that ended up being my best friends still this day that at Carolina, which is so weird. Yeah. Um, but we met at Merrick's on Santa Monica Boulevard for Mexican and you invited your mutual friend Eddie and his girlfriend Amber. And after the, it was a fun night. And after the dinner, um, I asked, I was like, hey man, are they, they, they were together. Um, and I was like, are they good? Because she's hot. Yeah. Um, and you're like, yeah, dude, they moved out here together. They live on a boat together. Like, I was like, all right, whatever. Um, and yeah, so then we became fast friends and uh, it was awesome. And then fast forward two years later, you also organized a Laker playoff watch party at Happy Endings, which was arguably my least favorite bar in all of Hollywood. <laughs> okay. It's dirty as hell, um, but a good place to watch sports. And yeah. in walked Amber, unbeknownst to me, after not seeing her for two years, and she was single. And long story short, she was into me, which I was like, holy shit, I forgot to eat. Because I was just talking to her and so excited, I got hammered. And <laughs> now it's 2020, and we have a two-year-old son, and she's expecting a daughter in March. So right. ultimately, you are responsible for introducing me to wifey. Indeed, indeed. Um, you know, I do what I can for my friends. So, and sorry, I, I got off track, but uh, the Ford Escape—that was the car after the the. Louise. Big Louise. And it was yeah. a Ford Escape hybrid. And I thought I was just thinking about this because we just got a new car, uh, got a Subaru Forester, very family friendly car. But I just I remembered how much money I just threw away on car payments. Um, it wasn't crazy, but it, I, I had no business. Yeah, I blacked it all out. It was a dope. It was a dope ride. It was cool. Um, yeah, it was blacked out. Everything was black and much better um, MPG than eight. <laughs> yeah, but it was such a wasteful expense for me, like leasing a car like that. But, um, so walk us through what it was like moving to LA as a musician, aspiring musician, you know, definitely hustling. You had to do what's called a pay to play. Yes. I, um, not many people know what that means. Yeah. I don't even know if it's still around. Well, live, obviously now live concerts are have gone by the wayside for the time being. So basically when I moved here, I was, um, man, I'm trying to even remember how I met different people. Um, I was also working in real estate. Uh, so that I'm backtracking cause that's, I got my real estate license in North Carolina and then I also got it out here and I came out and was tennis was something that allowed me to, be confident making the move that I could figure something out because tennis was a skill. Um, it all, I was always working at a country club from high school and worked, worked throughout college teaching tennis and figured out that I was, 
I had a strong skill set, and I knew that that would translate, especially to a place like L.A., where there's no weather concerns and you can teach all year round, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what allowed me to more confidently, I saved up money, but I, I was more confident in making the move because I knew that I could land. And I also had a connection to a guy that had a business. So I was coming out with, with some lessons that were probably going to happen. So through that, I met um, a guy named James Simpson, who was a real estate agent. And I talked to him, and I became his licensed assistant, and it was amazing. We did all our business in Hancock Park. Um, and then he had to leave, and I didn't. I haven't done real estate in a long time. But the, the only reason I say that is that because of that relationship, it's funny how domino, domino things happen. I met a woman that worked in our real estate office, and her husband was in a band called The Cool Table, and they were like a mashup cover band. So they would play like Nirvana and Michael Jackson. They would learn the songs and mash them together live, which is really dope. So I was I was playing shows, hustling, like basically with just a DJ. I met some DJs, and I'd be on the mic. And at one of those shows, uh, Christian Hand was the drummer for The Cool Table, and he saw me mic check. He was like, dude, you want me to sit in on drums? Um and I was like, sure. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I love that because I was playing with live, you know, live instruments back in North Carolina. And so anyway, and that night we had a great time together. And after Matt, uh, Eddie, who was in the cool table, he was like, dude, do you realize that Christian Hand said he likes you and likes your music? Because that's a major win because he hates everyone and everything, especially music. <laughs> um, and what ended up coming out of it was just this awesome relationship with Christian. He's an amazing guy. He's, we've been writing and producing music together forever. Um, so I got in with him and then, yes, I was doing, I was playing shows. There would be shows, um, that weren't pay to play, but a couple big ones that I did, I opened up for little brother, um, at the key club, which is now one Oak on sunset. And the way it works is you have to guarantee that you're going to sell 200 tickets at 20 bucks a pop, which is like, it's no joke. I mean, or it might not have been that many, but it, it, it's like you're out. But it's like a hundred tickets. I remember. Yeah, hundred tickets at, at twenty bucks. Yeah. Um, you're you're out a lot of money um, if you don't make it happen. So then what they do, what it the positive side of it is it, it gets you on a bill. So the Key Club show I rocked. I don't. Were you at that show? Yeah, I think I went to all of your yeah. shows. Yeah, I appreciate the support. <laughs> um, it was. I mean, it was amazing. You know, 600 people sold out. It was it was incredible. And but then my hope was, OK, and then I did a few other pay to play shows and I, I did really well. Like I, I, I was able to to sell a bunch of tickets and bring a bunch of people. I thought that the company that did it might start being a little more relaxed with their requirements yeah, for selling tickets. Because, yeah. yeah, when you start performing and doing well and knowing that you're legit and but it didn't happen. They just it was the same story. So it ends up being kind of a racket because I never made a dime. Um and yeah. So but I did get on some amazing stages. Um not all of them were pay to play. Like all the times I played the Roxy were not pay to play. It was just like, then I started finding a, a group of musicians out here that uh, I I worked with and we would sh share shows. Um, we were part of a group called The Collective. The Mowgli's ended up blowing up out of it. Um, but we did tons of shows together. So I would just play, play lots of shows with friends. Right, right. 
Well, you mentioned Christian, uh, AKA super beautiful. Um, yes. you guys co-wrote the theme track to this podcast after the war. What do you remember from recording that track? Man, that's, it's so old. Um, so it's hard. We did everything in his, but the workflow with Christian has always been, I do a lot of heavy lifting, producing the track at my place. Um, and then I would take it to him and we would just kind of finesse it and work it together. Usually track vocals at his place. He sang on that song too. Christian's a great singer. Um, so yeah, he's, he's still in, he's in an apartment in, um, Brighton, Hollywood with a whole studio set up. Uh, and we did everything at his, at his place. Um, and what were you using at home? Like what, what, um, like what technology were you using at the time? Pro tools. Um, and then I had, I don't know if I had switched, started using native instruments machine at that point. Um, but it was always based around pro tools, which was always limiting in some ways from a creation standpoint, but, um, Pro Tools, the industry standard as far as editing audio. And um, so, yeah, it was always, always Pro Tools. Sure. What's the hardest part about writing a song for you? The music or the lyric? Lyrics. So which comes first? The music then? My workflow is always music first. Um, and then writing to the track, like that it gives a feeling. Um, I'm currently working with two collaborators. It was really my focus now. The artist thing, like I... I did it for a long time um, and kind of for the reason I just said, like playing live was one of the most fun things that I did and I excelled at it and it, it was a lot of fun. It just was unsustainable. I would lose money because not to mention these pay to play shows, I was playing with a live band at that point then. Christian was drums, Michael Vince, who was in the Mowgli's, he was guitar. My boy Dirty Hollywood was playing percussion and guitar and I'd pay all of them to play with me as well as rehearsal at, at Swing House. Um, and it just wasn't sustainable. So it, yeah, I, the, and then I guess I'm kind of jumping around, but then coming out of that, um, well, I should probably should answer your question just specifically about, yeah, lyrics for me, man, is it's, it's super challenging. Um, and it's, I'm, I'm still, trying to get better at it. And I just know that collaboration is the most important thing, especially in songwriting in a lot of fields, but songwriting, man, any song you hear on the radio, there's likely six writers on it. Um, but I'm, I've got a couple guys that I've been working with that are, that I'm, we're really creating some cool stuff and the lyrics are, it's always this, the sticky point of trying to figure out, okay, story. Um, yeah, man point of view does it like does it all make sense does the average listener even care you know you talk about like nashville style writing country writing is so descriptive and so so much storytelling um but then you listen to big pop songs now and there's a lot of lyrics that are pretty trash man yeah they like, are yeah it doesn't even matter um it's the beat is hot catchy chorus so crafting lyrics for sure is is the hardest part. Yeah, it's funny. We were, um, we, my wife and I, were listening to something the other day. I think it was this, the the show Song Exploder. Have you seen that yep. on Netflix yet? Oh, they got a Netflix show? Yeah. Oh, because I've been listening to that podcast for years. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, they're on Netflix. Which is cool. So, oh, that's awesome. So we were watching Song Exploder the other night, and 
for some reason, we just got in the conversation of lyrics, just as a, a, a generality. And I just always, me personally, for some reason, I've always just imagined lyrics more or less always being true or something like autobiographical, you know what I mean? Or at least as a listener, maybe I just had hope in the back of my mind that this was a true story or that I could relate to it, even if it were sad. But then through that show, when you're talking collaboration, it's really interesting, like how many of these quote unquote stories being told through lyric is is quite literally just manufactured <laughs> and there's like nothing true, nothing. And then all of a sudden it means something. And it's just so interesting to me from just a conceptual standpoint, because they literally mean nothing, but then they turn out meaning something ultimately to the listener, of course, but even just to the lyric. Now I'm getting into the weeds here, but that, that, that whole system in place of collaboration and manufacturing these lyrics is just, it's so foreign to me because I've never listened with that type of mentality. Yeah, I think it probably varies from artist to artist greatly. I too had to let go of that a bit, feeling like everything I talked about had to be like true to me. Because if you think about somebody writing a fictional novel, that's you know, what you my can, wife you, said. <laughs> yeah, you can draw on, I mean, it the not every part of the lyric might be personal, but you can draw on experiences or your collaborators draw on experiences. And the, ultimately, the, the thing with lyrics, it's just got to be universal. And generally, verses are more descriptive. You want to put the listener there. Show, don't tell is something you often hear in lyric writing in the verses. And then, boom, chorus, more broad, general, a sentiment that everybody can relate to. Um, and it, that's it's that's all about yeah, I mean, like crafting it, which early on, like these songs you're talking about, like After the War and, you know, songs I was doing early in my career, I kind of just wrote whatever. I didn't know much about song structure. I learned a lot from Christian, like arrangement, um, but I didn't spend so much time about it. I think there's a happy medium because now I find myself, I've, I've studied songwriting for a bunch of years, took a bunch of classes and lyric, you know. There is something to be said for overthinking things, I think, but it's also like I always tell like the average listener, even though they might not pay attention directly to the lyrics, I still think it if if, if the song is well crafted, it hits them in a different way, even if they don't know it. It's subconsciously. Like even if yeah. it's subconsciously because it, it it carries more weight. It carries more like meaning. Even if it's some dumb club song, not dumb, but you know what I mean, just some song that doesn't is not supposed to have meaning. If it's got like clever lyrics or like it's something that, yeah. So I've really been focused on on that. And in fact, tomorrow uh, I have a I got a rough song I've been doing with my buddy Evan Lewis that we think is pretty cool. T title is crazy. Um, and it's a breakup song instead of being this love song. It's like, you're driving me crazy. And it's just like a, a couple fighting. We wrote it as a duet and I, I, I dig it. Um, but I'm doing this songwriting workshop where it's like, I don't know, 20, 20 other writers, a zoom call. And then I've met some great songwriting contacts, but, um, this woman, Pam and Richard Harris, they're a team. Um, and it's like a meet and critique. So they'll take a listen to it. And my, I get five minutes of critique and my, I told them, I was like, I specifically would like notes cause it's a rough draft of production and mix. I just want story concept, lyric notes. Like I'm, I'm getting there, man. It's, it's a, 
it's a science. It's a science, but it's also like this emotional science. Um, and we share the love of the show Songland. I was just about which to bring I try to turn, yeah. turn so many people onto, but you really see the talent of, of writers at that level, especially Shane McAnally Shane's in the lyric insane. sense. Like it's, I sit there with goosebumps. He'll come up with lyrics that are like, what? Yeah. How did you do that in 30 seconds? And it's this like clever twist on something that the person already had. And it just really illustrates how collaboration in songwriting, because you could have some idea that then takes somebody else to a completely different place and improves upon it. And yeah, man, I, I love that show. Yeah, I yeah. I do too. Yeah, it's cool. I'd like to take a minute to thank you for listening to the Standard Age podcast. It's certainly been a lot of fun sharing each guest's story, even during the craziest of times over the last year. The good news is it's allowed me to further focus on some of the elements that make Standard Age possible. I've done a ton of product development, some items for well over a year. If you'd like to support the podcast, the least expensive way is to simply rate and review the show on whatever platform you're on. Further, you can visit standard-h.com where you can purchase the brand's apparel or directly support the podcast under the accessories tab. I can't thank you guys enough for listening to the show and for all of your support, especially through social media. It's been so much fun interacting with you and all of the great feedback has been wonderful, so thank you. So many of you are into watches, whether you are just starting to collect them or if you're already in deep in discussing the extensive finishing of the movements. In fact, my most listened to episodes have been watch-related. For those of you interested in independent watch companies, Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California might just have what you're looking for. Previous listeners may be familiar with owner Tim Jackson from episode one of the Standard Age podcast. He and his team are certainly a wealth of information while offering incredible customer service. Tim and his team are quite literally made up of family and friends, so I'm confident you'll feel very much a part of their community even if it's your first visit. Of course, if California is out of reach, definitely visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information, or visit Tim's blog, Independent in Time, for a deeper watch dive. Now let's get back to the show. You used to write a lot in minor keys, which I've always enjoyed. Uh, I know you gravitated to that. Why do you think that is? Why did you gravitate to minor keys? I love dark music, man. Um, I'm not a dark guy. I, right. I got. I got it outwardly, uh, like everybody. I got some. I got some. De- you got some skeletons. And, <laughs> I got some. Not necessarily skeletons. Just, just, just stuff that I struggle with. But. Um, I love just like, especially from the hip hop point of view, just grimy, like dirty hip hop beats, like DMX, like angry, like, Um, so I I just always like beats that hit hard. Um, And funny enough, my approach now as I make beats is um, I basically do either a dark hip hop beat or an upbeat type pop that's usually in a major, major key. because I've I found that I do both. Those are kind of like the two lanes, um, and I'm not going to be the person rapping over the dark beats now. Like I'm not, you know, this brooding hip hop artist that with a kid, and you know, it's right. it's not me. But the actual crafting of the beat, uh, I still love making like dark dissonant beats. Um, right, right. 
So what, uh, what are some of the markers that you use at least, and maybe in the industry potentially, uh, that I don't know about for basically throwing in the towel, like this is just not working. Like, when do you know something doesn't work? Huh? That's a good question. Um, I think, and this is, I've gotten a new process recently. I think that the key with that is figuring out that quickly or early on in the process. Um, so I did this music production course this year that has been game changing for me. It's this guy, Mike Monday, who lives in Australia, but he's got this whole system. It's based on Trello, which I didn't know this um, task management that is amazing to have all your songs listed out in different stages. And so the creation part of it, he calls splurging. And it's basically set a timer for 30 minutes and vomit ideas um, and with no concern about quality so that you're just getting it out onto the paper if you're writing or if you're doing music, you're just throwing it out there. You're making something to have an opinion about at a later time. And this was really a game changer for me. This happened this year because what it does and then wait a week. So this is super important. Don't listen to what you did for a week. And you come back to it with fresh ears, and then you're like, you say, okay, uh, nah, I didn't like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to work on it. I'm going to put it in a sketchbook that maybe there's something from it I can pull. But if something perks my ears, oh, that was dope. Then I take it to the next section in Trello called Discovery, and this is super specific, but then I work on it further with some, make a checklist of what to do to it. So the idea is that you don't, in music, especially production, a lot of time is spent crafting stuff. Right. It I can now, what it's given me confidence, I can knock out a beat in 30 minutes easily, like something. Then if I decide that I want to work on it further, that's where that creative process starts to become convergent. He, like it, at first it's divergent, anything's game. You can do anything you want, blah, 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 blah. Then when you start EQing, transitions, like all the really fine details. You just want to make sure you're doing all that in, this, in uh, the interest of time on something that you actually want to work on. So I think that's what I've really found this year is now that I've got some songs and still maybe they end up not working, but I don't know if that exactly answered your question, but then as I've listened to a bunch of podcasts, I heard Rick Rubin tell Andre 3000 the same thing, not, not the splurge term, but basically the idea of separating the creator and the editor is super important. And before that, I was doing both. I'd be working on a beat, but let me try to find the perfect synth sound for three hours, like in the very early stages of this beat, which is a giant waste of time. Now I have sounds that I know I want, then I can go back and tweak them, but just to boom, get them down. And it's amazing what I can knock out in 30 minutes. Um, yeah, I think, so. I think that's important, you know, taking a step back. I mean, I think anything in a creative space, because anytime you've created something super quickly, uh, it could be genius. And you might come back and be like, I need to change nothing. But being able to step back and revisit to your point, does give you a, a, a more or less a clean slate to, to view it on or hear it in your case. Yes, for sure. And he does talk about it. It's, it's a creative system for everything, whether you're a painter a yes. writer that what he has developed and it's pretty amazing, man. Like for that reason of just having, it allows you to work on multiple projects at once. So I've got 
three songs that are in the discovery stage that I think I like them. Now I got to do some work on them. Then I got a bunch of songs that are in draft stage where I know I want to release these. Now I got to really dig in. And you do in smaller sessions too has been helpful for me. Set a timer. I've got a kitchen timer on my desk and it's been a big game changer seeing these big red lights. 30 minute session. Do it. Then take a breather. Do some push ups. You know, just five minutes, take a break re-enter the situation so um, it's not old school with the dial so it rings in the background of your no, vocal i want the i got the big digital <laughs> numbers but it's it's amazing i was going to do one on my computer like up in the top right corner like a little timer but to have the visual kitchen timer um yeah that's that's helped a lot that's cool so you have millions of views on youtube for a few parody songs that you've written uh can we talk about those back to the 90s and I think back to the 80s? Yeah, man. You've done these decade-centric songs that are kind of prolific. Thanks. Um, I'll have to backtrack a bit. So early on here, I heard about voiceover um, and thought I might have a chance shot at it and you were there you were playing tennis with me at that time and I was you know we I remember talking to you about it um just because of having been in studios or whatever so fast forward I did I met some amazing people in voiceover that introduced me to the right people and I got an amazing agent and VO has done great at my agent DPN um we had booth directors before COVID where you would go in and read auditions. And one of the booth directors said, Hey man, we got another client named Ben Giroux who he wants to do a funny song and video about like a hip hop song about being short. Ben's like, he's a short guy and he's just the dictionary definition of a working actor. Just one of the most talented dudes I've ever met. Um, but he's been on lots of Nickelodeon shows and, and Disney and he's played jockeys and elves every year at fucking Christmas. He hates it. So <laughs> the idea was I, and so he came to me and I, he was like, yeah, I want to make basically David DPM put us together. And Ben and I wrote this song called little dude Anthem where I was his regular size cohort. And it was the first one we did. We all, we both had big teams. I had done a bunch of music videos, had some amazing video guys, DPs, and Ben has been in the film and TV world forever. Great director. So anyway, it was just this melding of, of, of contacts and talents. And we had a blast doing Little Dude Anthem. It, it got a few million views on Facebook and did all okay. It was super specific, but it was funny. It really was legitimately funny. He's been, he got, he does uh, Nigel Lithgow's plays, every year so we had access to so you think you can dance dancers like the talent was it was big time yeah it's so ridiculous we had a lot of fun and then ben's idea he was like man it seems like we're both kind of nostalgic we should do a video about the 90s um and so we started to conceptualize it uh basically like a, a video that and a song and video that would pay homage to the, everything that was great about the 90s and excuse me christian hand um, said, if you want to really make this cool, you should put multiple genres of the nineties into one track. And I, when he said that, I was like, oh man, that's, that's sick. Added challenge, com like production wise. Right. But that's what we did. So the first back to the nineties, we did first, like the verses are hip hop. The choruses were boy bands. Uh, we parodied Backstreet Boys in an airport, airport hangar. Um, you know, 
I want it that way video. I had a chin strap and a fedora like AJ. We had a Nirvana grunge bridge section. Bridge section. We had a R&B section. And dude, it went insanely viral with zero dollars spent and zero marketing. Now it went crazy on Facebook. And sadly, before they did any sort of monetization, YouTube's a different animal. I had fr- I've had friends that are like YouTube inf- influencers, and even they, had, everything's gone down for them. But they really reward consistency. Like every Tuesday, I'm going to unbox an item, or I'm going to do a you know, right. That's what their algorithm re- rewards. Not to mention, kids are on there, and our videos are nostalgic. Although it's cool to to talk about the 90s as kids too. But anyway, man, we got 25 million views in three days on Facebook. It was like- Right, so it's more whirlwind. Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Facebook. Um, it, it, it was this whirlwind, organic, like 100% organic success that was crazy, man. The Backstreet Boys loved the video. We had a bunch of celebrities, you know, love the video. So then that just fed to the the viral part of it, but the Backstreet Boys invited us out to Vegas to be VIPs at their show at Vegas. It was, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a, a huge Backstreet Boys fan, but I've never been, it was at the, um, the Hard Rock uh, or Planet Hollywood, Planet Hollywood, Planet Hollywood, um, I think 8,000 seat arena. I have never been around more screaming women in my entire life in it their was, mid 30s <laughs> dude the amount of attractive mid 30s women at this show was insane like amber came with me my, my wife came with me um yeah nick carter ended up singing right to her <laughs> like it, they had these pedestals we had good seats and um but dude what it was like <sighs> i mean deafening yeah um so yeah back to the 90s man was it was just so much fun. It was a huge production. We knocked it out in three days. And then we spent the next two years, that was 2017, we spent the next two years working on Back to the 80s, which came out last summer. Didn't go nuts. I mean, I think it's got three or four million views on Facebook. I think things have changed a lot. Algorithms, you know, privacy, all that stuff has changed. But we are we really think that it's better than the first one, even if it doesn't have the crazy views. Because over 200 people worked on the video um, That's insane. It literally, we, we would spend four hours on a setup. You know, they're rapid fire. If people are listening and don't that haven't seen it, which probably haven't, but they're rapid fire things. Like I'm, right. where's the beef? Old ladies, Golden Girls, uh, Doc and Marty from. I mean, these 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 rapid fire lyrics where the scene will actually appear for a couple seconds, like seconds if that. Yeah. Like yeah, but we spend four hours shooting it. And man, there's never been a more rewarding creative thing that I've done. Ben directs the video, um, the videos. I'm right there, like next to him, I guess, as the creative producer. Um, and just to lead a team of like everybody who works for us, man, are, are the best of the best in their game. Like hair and makeup, wardrobe, art department, like all these people are working on big movies and big TV shows and they love working with us because it's so much fun. Like we had these. The, back to the 80s, the first day, we did 14 setups in a day. And it was, ended up being like a 13-hour a day. And the last one was Scarface, where we both got dressed up like Al Pacino in a tux at the end scene with the, with the grenade launcher. And we had, we, I was juggling eight balls of Coke and like Coke everywhere, fake Coke. Um, right, right. You know, <laughs> and just like it was just 
insanity. And when we got done, the entire ca- crew and cast was in tears laughing after a 13-hour day. Um, the grips, the guys doing lighting, like all the people who use are like, get me the fuck out of here. Like shooting stuff, being on set is a very long grinding yeah, It's arduous, day. yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, man, it, it's just a really, it's been rewarding. Um, ben and Jensen is what we go by. But the back to the 90s, we charted on Billboard. It was, it was a lot of fun, man. Our, our end game with it, we'll see what happens. We're never doing another video like that again unless it's somebody else's dime. Fortunately for for me and for Ben, uh, you know, voiceover for me and then Ben's acting career and voiceover is a, has allowed us to pay for it. But they were very expensive videos to make. And the goal for us was ad agencies, brands hiring us in our Rolodex of just amazing talent at every level. Like, they don't have to do anything. Hire Ben and Jensen and they'll shoot and make right just do everything for them. Some funny you're, musical you're, thing. You're like the the wedding planner of video making. <laughs> like you just yeah, take care just of stress it. free. <laughs> just take care of it. So, um, yeah, that's that, cool. It is. It's a lot of fun, man. That's been my musical pursuits after I stopped kind of doing the solo artist thing, and um, it, it it was nice. It was, it's good times. Well, let's talk about voiceover real quick because you are currently sitting in a voiceover booth inside of your house yes which just looks so pro it's ridiculous it's sick what uh, <laughs> what I, I'm not, it's it's awesome what uh so walk us through the the voiceover thing so you took a couple classes right and then i guess you just start booking gigs through dpn or like how did that work yeah so i um through tennis, tennis. The other advantage of tennis is tennis has always been a way to meet great people. Um, sometimes affluent, successful people play tennis. But Michael Dorn, I used to uh, play with him, and you played with him. Uh, who, from Star Trek fame, is Commander Worf. I'm not a Star Trek fan, but yeah, um, Michael's the nicest the guy. Awesome, yeah, awesome dudes ever. <laughs> yeah. uh, he's an amazing guy. Like. Um, so he's the one that told me to go take some classes at this place called Kalmanson. And just long story short, I met the right people. Like it was a domino effect. My coach at Kalmanson, I did well. I, my instincts were right. I picked it up quickly. Um, I, I could build some confidence quickly. She, my coach there, Malik Berger, introduced me to this guy, Jeff Howell, who's a big director and producer, to do a demo. I went in to Jeff, um, had a session with him. He's like, hey, man, you know, save your money. A demo is like 3,500 bucks. Let me make a phone call. All you need is real world experience. He's best friends with Jeff Danis, who is the D and DPN and one of the biggest voiceover agents really in history. Um, used to run the ICM uh, VO department until he bought them out and went out on his own. Oh, wow. And uh, it was, I went into the office of DPN, read some copy, basically as an audition to be repped by them and got the opportunity. Um, and I didn't book a job for 14 months and was in my head, you know, are they going to drop me? Um, and I would check in f- from time to time and they'd always be like, you sound great. Just keep doing it. It's literally like throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. I mean, it's right. a numbers game through and through. And it was really, I looked at it almost like a baseball farm team where they have no, for me, like they didn't have any risk in giving me opportunity if they, if they heard some talent because they just gave me copy and I would read it. And then, um, yeah, man, it's, I, 
I'm so fortunate to have found it um, because it's just been life-changing to give me some real sense of income now that I have a family. I mean, music is so challenging. Aside from throughout the years when I was doing solo stuff, I had some nice film and TV syncs. Um, Syncs mean placements or like songs and TV and, and movies that brought in some money, but everything's changed obviously. And, you know, people don't make tons of money unless you're in the 1% in music. So VO has just been, yeah, man, it's been awesome. Um, And this booth, I was, I was recording jobs from home that would go on broadcast for many years from my walk-in closet. I was able to treat it. Um, it's doable for sure. And then last year, just I was in a position to make some, some upgrades and investments in, in my setup and studio, and I got this. It's a Studio Bricks booth, and it's, it's awesome. Uh, they, build them, they make them in Spain, but it's somewhat modular where you can take it apart. It's still a job, but it's going to be like you can take it apart. Um, Whereas the whisper rooms, which are really, really nice booths as well, I guess are, are pretty challenging to take apart and move. And um, so, yeah, man, I, I love VO. Uh, and during these times, man, fortunately, VO has not been negatively affected by COVID at all. Like I'm as busy as I was. Auditions are as busy, um, you know, and I feel fortunate in that regard, too. So you use Pro Tools for that as well, obviously. What kind of mic do you have there? That is a it's a Sennheiser MKH four sixteen, which is a shotgun mic um, that you see on movie sets. It's like when you see people with boom stands. Um, I don't have the windscreen on it because you don't need the windscreen when you're inside. But that's it's the same mic. So it started. It's a really rugged, durable mic, but it started as a as a set mike and then it just became ubiquitous in in vo studios i was using a shore sm7b for many years for music and uh for vo and it's a great mic too but the sennheiser what it does is captures the like the the lower end of my register much better um and it's yeah it's an amazing mic usually in in vo studios you're going to see they almost always have sennheisers and then also neumann's TLM 103s, um, just a couple Neumanns that I just like the Sennheiser better, the way it sounds with my voice. Um, So what have you booked recently that maybe we would have heard your voice? I have been working with some clients for a few years. I, um, for Subaru, do a lot of their TV stuff. I did some of that this week. So it's I told it was funny we were getting our new car yesterday and I had the session the day before and I told it's an ad agency in um, Minnesota Carmichael Lynch but I told those guys I was like hey man I got I got a a Subaru Forester coming tomorrow so I've been reading their copy there maybe reading so much ad copy from Subaru has brainwashed me into yeah, getting you, one you um, sold yourself one I sold myself yeah <laughs> um, but that uh, they've been a long time client I also do promo work for TBS for the show uh, the Misery Index which just came back this week so the few weeks leading up to it, um, I was recording a bunch of promos for TBS. And then I had, a, this was a fun booking last week, a new one. Um, I worked some Big Ten Network promo uh, jobs. And like I, early in our conversation, my dad coached football at Michigan. for right. He coached in the 70s and then also in the 80s and 90s. So I'm a big Michigan Wolverine football fan. So it was kind of, it was really cool. They're Big Ten Network, um, it has been BTN, but they're rebranding to be the 
the number one G network, which is how the Big Ten's logo is. So they're doing this whole rebranding thing, and I, I'm voicing the um, uh, the like the rebrand campaign, and it, it, it was fun because it's like it, it was like this kind of edgy, you know edgy read um all about sports and i'm the biggest sports fan in the world so it was an it was a fun gig that's cool man hopefully hopefully there'll be more of it that's the thing with these jobs you know even if it's a one or two thing two spot thing to be able to make a really good and this goes for every every business but to to be professional to to knock it out for them to be efficient to be tight like to just handle everything professionally especially in the creative fields people remember that and i've found not only do i feel like i need but i put that forth and then some of that is repeat business but also my collaborators when i find good people i just i stick with them yeah yeah because you get into a workflow so um, I'm cautiously optimistic that maybe I'll be doing some more Big Ten Network promo stuff because that was a fun one, just the sports angle. And, um, yeah, so that was recent stuff. Incredible, man. That's awesome. Congrats on that for sure. Thanks. You've mentioned you're married. You've mentioned the two-year-old, little Braxton. Um, you've mentioned... Big Braxton. Big, big Braxton now. <laughs> yeah, and then we have a daughter on the way, but that's not the only exciting news. You're moving to Nashville. We are. Um, so what brought that on closer to family, obviously? Yes. Uh, obviously this year has changed a lot of things for a lot of people. Um, once Braxton has been born, my, my parents are in, are in the Raleigh area. Uh, Amber's family lives in Charlotte. Um, everything changes with kids and Mm -hmm. we haven't seen my mom since last December. Um, so it's just been really, really hard. So the pull to go back East has been there. We thought I, I visited Nashville a few years ago and then I was like, yeah, nah, cause I love Southern California, man. I absolutely love it out here. Yeah. Love it less now in LA, <laughs> LA specifically. Um, it just being quarantined with, a, with a two year old and you can't go anywhere. Uh, we live in a great neighborhood to walk around. I just had this like increasing feeling, the predominant feeling that being closer to my mom was the most important thing. Um, Like, I just feel like I would have looked back on my life and regretted not giving her the opportunity to be, be closer to her grandchildren. Now it's still going to be like an eight hour drive, but it's, that seems like worlds closer than, than what we are now. Sure. Um, And so what has always prevented me with that, not only my love for Southern California, but, as we've talked through this conversation a lot, just the hustle, man, of like coming out here with nothing. I moved out here with my sister, so that nothing. She came from Manhattan, which you're you're also close to my sister. But right. um, to just build something, as you know about with Standard H, to build and build and build relationships. I always felt that if I left, I would lose that. Mm. I would lose being in the in an area that had the opportunities. Well, everything has changed. Um, I don't do on-camera work, you know, as far as commercial acting or acting and stuff. And I, I talk to my agents. I talk to the head of each department, commercial, promo, and animation, and they all said, go. They're like, get out. Doesn't matter at all where yeah. you are. You got your booth. Um, got my booth. And my skill set from music has always really helped help voiceover, just the audio engineering part of it. But now more than ever, it's more valuable. Um, 
But that was all I needed, man, to, to know that I still had their support and that it literally nothing changes. Like I, I could be anywhere in the world and do what I do. And then I've been really hunkering down in the, in the little amount of time that I do have, you know, with a toddler around all the time, really working on the songwriting and production craft and have a bunch of unfinished ideas, but a bunch of things that I'm excited about. And Nashville and L.A. are awash when it comes to, to music opportunities. Right. They're, they, they literally are the two songwriting capitals of the world. So that, too, gives me, a, like, it seems to be a great fit. We actually fly out uh, Saturday, um, Amber and I. Her mom's coming out to, to watch Braxton, um, and we're just going to get the lay of the land. We're getting out, man. Baby's due in March. We got to be there by January 1st, get a short-term rental get the lay of the land, figure out where we might want to buy. And that, that too, I had a friend of mine, another actor friend, uh, Ravi Patel is moving to, to Nashville and he's a super successful actor and his, he's kind of got the same thing. He it's zoom auditions and, um, mm. but he, he threw out a number. I don't know if it's accurate, but it's almost like a 40% raise the moment that we hit Tennessee. So, Oh, because of the, the cost family, of living, cost of living taxes, everything um wow so all those factors man it for me to know that i can still continue my career and be in a place that offers excitement and opportunity and then we're so much closer to home um yeah it's a it's an exciting trip gonna miss you and the thing is we've learned like we don't see anybody (laughs) nobody sees anybody yeah you know it's like um or you can at least function without seeing your friends all the time. Or, um, so yeah, man. Yeah, we're we're excited. That's cool, man. I'm excited for you. When was the last time you played tennis? Amber's mom is a big tennis player. Really? And I didn't know that. Yes, she's in leagues. Um, so she was out a few months or like a month ago. And we went out and hit on the court. That was the first time since last December. Um, I broke my toe. I got a really sweet dad injury (laughs) story. (laughs) Putting our son down to bed, I smashed my left big toe up against our bed frame. Then walked on it for two two months, teaching tennis on it. Ended up hairline fracture on the one of the tiniest bones on the bottom of my foot. And I was in a walking boot for three months, getting healthy right as COVID started. And then um, Amber has just crushed. She's built a business, and it, tennis was just something that I just, I just stopped doing. Um, and I don't really miss it. I'll be honest. Uh, I miss like playing. I used to my, our buddy Ryan when he lived here. We would go out and hit, you know, once a week, which is a great workout and fun. But yeah, man. Um, so not teaching. So it's been a either. while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't plan on teaching any tennis uh, except to Braxton and. Uh, the little girl for the foreseeable future. Right. Um, there's things I miss about it. Lots of good people. I had that crew on Beverly Glen, lots of good people, but yeah. Um, well, cool, man. Well, what advice would you give anybody looking to get into either voiceover? I mean, songwriting, you could just sit down with a pen and a pad and start there, but what kind of bits of advice would you give folks that are maybe interested in doing some of the things you've been doing? VO is is trickier now. I've had this conversation now recently because it used to be 
you had you could be a really talented actor and and get into VO and not have to worry at all about the technical side of things. The barrier of entry now is quite a bit tougher because you cannot you have to know audio. You have to be able to set up a recording space. You have to be able to work with Pro Tools or some other software, GarageBand. It doesn't matter. Um, so not to be, not to sound discouraging, but that is like a prerequisite. Whereas before it, it wasn't. Like yeah, you, you would go into, into studios room, and yeah. yeah, so it doesn't matter. But um, I know there's some some classes that Voice Print West. Um, they're doing Zoom classes. And as far as VO specific is to take a class because there is a, there's some like technical parts about it that you want to know and see if it's something that you would like. And then if it is, as far as the practice of it, um, got some great advice early on from one of my coaches to find magazines that you like. At the time when I was getting into it, I had ESPN, the magazine and men's health and then tear out all the ad copy in the magazines and read it out loud a million times. Um, it's a great way to get copy that you fits your interests or that's like that your voice would likely fit too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's probably easier to speak with enthusiasm about a subject you enjoy, obviously. Right. Yeah. And, and also that your voice would be actually somebody that would sell that. Mm -hmm. This, this is as far as um, commercial is concerned and then read out loud. I mean, primarily what goes on in the voiceover world right now is conversational. Just like we've been talking this entire time, it needs the, one of the nuanced, tricky things is to read copy, but make it sound like you're not reading, like you're talking to a person. Um, and so that, to me, the easiest way to do that is just reading out loud over and over again. And then also listen. Like, I actually love commercial. I don't love them, but... Early on, I stopped fast forwarding and fast forwarding through all the commercials, listening to promos, you know, tonight on Fox, da, 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 you know, whatever, like just really listening to what is going on in the marketplace. Um, yeah, those would be the suggestions. I, uh, I kind of I've sent a number of people, Jeff Howell, who I mentioned, who I, who opened doors for me. Um, that's kind of my path. I've, there's been a few people that have had exact success with what I've told them to do. Go take a class. When you're done taking a class, tell me, I'll make an intro to Jeff Howell and then go from there because Jeff is somebody who, you know, when you pay for an hour with him, expert direction, give you a real sense of what you need to work on, where your voice fits. But then the bonus side of things is he's been in it for 40 years or 30 years or whatever and knows agents and, you know, can open just like every business, it's relationships. So right, right. making a good impression on people. And I, I just always use Jeff as the gatekeeper. Um, and, and just honestly, man, it's tough right now because agents are not very likely to take on new talent because of trust, because it's like, Hey, we've got people that we know their setups, know them. There's just so many more variables now. Um, right. But there are also many sites like voice, Voices.com and Voice123 where you can submit for non-union work and you don't, you don't need an agent. So, right, um, cool. But, and, then, and then, yeah, songwriting, man. Just got to write a lot of songs. I remember hearing some depressing statistic, like the, the top Nashville you know, hit songwriters, 
3% of what they write makes it to the radio or something. Like it's, it's, it's right. It's insane. Um, so yeah, just volume, um, and just working and working and working and working and working. I'm still working, man. I voiceover, I've had some really nice success in VO and, and music has been great, but it's always going to be my passion. I'm never, ever going to stop writing and making music. That's why, like, it's my lifeblood. When I feel productive in music and that I've got things that I'm creating, it always it just makes me a better person, it makes me a better husband, it makes me a better dad. Like, I yeah. need it. It's weird. It just really sustains me. Um, and before we get off, I would, would be remiss to not mention that to everybody that I – man – doesn't really go by there's not a day that goes by that i don't rock my standard h hat for the last like i don't know when you first made them but i literally have i'm like i've been a walking billboard on my head as you know and i just absolutely love the brand the logo and everything and most of the time well when i used to go out in the world i would always text you man but almost every time when i would be out somewhere some of you're like dude that's a dope hat like yeah it's 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 my my man Wes's company standard age check them out blah 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 so thanks man i have legitimate enthusiasm for your your project and you know i'm a a huge supporter yeah for sure man and it means obviously the world to me um we should probably get you a fresh hat before you go to Nashville. <laughs> I'd love that new, the black on, uh, the stealth. I don't know what you, the stealth. Yeah. Stealth is dope. I got, I got the original. It's that colorway black, there. Yeah. It's sick. I got the original one, your original hat that you first made. I use that as my beach hat. If I know, I like, I don't care what happens to it. Right. Then right. I got two clean ones. I got my clean black one and my clean navy one that I, they're getting less and less clean with a toddler. But um, yeah, man, I'll take a stealth. Okay. If you don't mind. No, not at all, man. It's the least I could do for having you on the show. Um, anything else you want to promote? No, not really, man. It's I'm in a weird. Just I I just am working on a lot of music, and it's far from being done. And because of this move and. But I got a lot of good positive things cooking. I guess people who have no clue at all about me, which is probably everybody, um, if you go to jensenreed.com, all ease, uh, you could check out those. Uh, the, the back to the 90s and back to the 80s videos, especially in a time like this, are worth three and a half minutes of your time. They're they're pretty fun. Like the Yeah, I'd they're, agree. They're a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah, people could check me out there and all my other music. I, I have to realize that all my music, that lives on Spotify and everything is old to me, but you know, some people haven't, haven't heard it. So sure. Um, but yeah, cool, man. Well, obviously it's great to see you. Uh, likewise, always good to get some FaceTime with you. Uh, please give my best to the missus and big I man will. Brax. And, uh, yeah, well, we'll chat. Tell soon. Terry we said hello. We'll do man. Thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely, man. My pleasure. All right such a great time getting to know even your closest friends on a deeper level and Jensen was no different. As always, big thanks goes out to He and Super Beautiful for providing the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for providing the noise-canceling headphones. The Standard Age Podcast will return in two weeks' time for a guest I think many of you might just be familiar with. Stay tuned for that, and in the meantime, stay healthy and stay happy. Bye, everyone.